Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the year of our Lord 2020, Matthew's warning that we are not to judge our neighbor draws a scowl from those who hear it, even as Christians themselves dismiss it. No sooner do we give lip service to this teaching than we scramble to find self-justifying theories that separate us from others. We want to know that we are right, that we are safe, that we can protect and control what we have. We want assurances that God has chosen us. We want to be called his friends. Friend, in Matthew's Gospel, that is not good news. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 8 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 355 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, Richard, I talked about the book of Deuteronomy and the important role that the genocide against the Canaanites plays in our understanding of Matthew 22. And I want to keep leaning into that fact. And it is a fact. Matthew is dealing in the currency of Deuteronomy. You come into the land, you witness the genocide against the Canaanites, and then you're supposed to feel happy that now you get to live here? I know it suits the ideology of manifest destiny, and some people do think it's a wonderful blessing to live on somebody else's land. But in Deuteronomy, it's a threat, because if God can take out the Canaanites, he can also take out you. And here, as I said last week in Matthew chapter 22, this is being reversed. Now the Canaanites are being brought back into the land. But one should never feel as though now you're saved because you were brought in. Everybody wants to prove that they're on the good side, they won, and everything is right as rain for them. And scripture is saying that everything is wrong for you so that you will be put in your place to act correctly towards others. It's not good news in human worldly terms that you're being brought into this feast. The guy just wiped out the previous invitees. He wiped them out. Now your human rational brain will try to justify and explain why they deserved it, but that only amplifies the condemnation against you for imagining that you will have of your own accord a different ending than those wretched, wretched ones. Again, being brought in to this feast, you should be suspect of the king and afraid of what he will do 
to you. That is Matthew's intention here. It's so natural to read this passage and assume I wasn't somebody who killed the servants or mistreated the servants. I accepted the invitation, so I'm in now. No one ever reads this passage and identifies with the people in the city that God just destroyed. No one says like, well, I don't know what happens to the rest of the people, but I know that my city was destroyed by God because we didn't accept the invitation. No one ever says that ever. So this story manipulates the reader into thinking that you must have accepted the invitation. You must have treated the servant well, and that's how you ended up where you are right now. It plays with the listener. And don't forget, this is aimed at the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests. They've been kind of rotating through these conversations. And we're reading with those ears, whether we want to or not, because we think that we've done the right thing, which makes us safer than other people. Why did the Canaanites get killed? Well, they must have done something wrong. But we have to come in and fortify our cities so that nothing wrong can happen to us. And what happens when we do that? God reminds the people, I can get through any fortification. That's why Joel is so cool, because he like attacks them with locusts coming in the windows of the fortification. He sends fire inside the city. There is nothing you can do when God decides that your time is up. We've always been forcing this idea that you must be listening to this teaching, but ultimately this teaching is God's sovereignty. Don't forget that Jesus is coming to the point of ultimate paradox where you see a king reigning on a cross, which is impossible. This book is reformatting our brains so that we see kingship in light of God's kingship, not God's kingship in light of human kingship. God in the story is flipping kingship on its head. Matthew is flipping this idea so that we don't start to think all you have to do is get in the good graces of the king and you'll be set. Everybody wants to be set. Whether you're an Orthodox who wants to be set because, well, I receive communion, I receive confession, so I'm set. If you're a Protestant, well, I confess the correct prayer and I said the correct formula, therefore I'm set. Whether you're Orthodox or you're Protestant or you're Catholic, you're never set. Because once you're set, you undermine the sovereignty of God who has the last word. This parable is dispelling the illusion of your purity and destroying the false imaginings of your righteousness. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. The most important part about verses 8 and 9 is that while in 8 he states clearly that the original invitees are unworthy, which only the Lord, only the king, only the judge can decide. This is scripture. You don't decide your own worthiness. This is not Paul's idea. This is the teaching of scripture in which there is only one who is holy, only one who imparts righteousness, which is why, as Father Paul pointed out on his Tuesday program, it is Paul 
who imparts the Spirit to his disciples. We don't have control over the Spirit or holiness or righteousness or worthiness. The other part is that in verse 9, he does not say that they should go to the main highways and find worthy guests. That is not the statement. He has declared that the ones whom he wiped out were unworthy. I mean, it reminds me so much of Deuteronomy. If you find this, wipe it out. If you find this group, wipe it out. If you go to this place, wipe it out. He doesn't say now, go find worthy people. He says, go find other people. Very uncomfortable message. Because if the people that he's bringing in, Rich, aren't worthy, what's the criteria for who's in and who's out? That is the most frustrating question, who's in and who's out, because we want to know. The scribes and the Pharisees want to know. The good Christians want to know. All the people of God want to know who's in and who's out. They want to know because they want to lock it down. This is what gets so tricky because, like you said, he says, as many as you can find, bring them to the wedding. Like, he's not looking for quality. He's looking purely for quantity. Bring them in. Because people want to have set in their mind what the criteria are. The thing about this passage is you can just see the way that Jesus hooks you. Because, oh, these guys murder the servants and like refuse the invitation. It's so easy to see why those people must be wrong. I mean, for heaven's sake, they thumb their nose at God. And if that wasn't good enough, they murdered the guy who told them they could come to a party. I mean, like who is worse? Hey, you want to come to my party? And then you'd stab the guy. I mean, how could it be any worse than that? Those guys were obviously so evil, and go get him, God. We want you, God, to go get those evil people. Jesus and the gospel writers manipulate the reader. They manipulate the one who hears Scripture because it puts you on a side and then knocks you down. You're supposed to think that you were the one who happily accepted the invitation. And, you know, when I was asked, I didn't murder anybody. I just said, sure, I'll come to the party. I accepted God. I accepted the teaching. I accept scripture. I'm not like those people who murdered the guy who told them about scripture and the teaching and the invitation. I mean, it really sets us on this garden path of thinking we know what it is to be in and we know that we're doing it. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. This is the gospel of the wheat and the tares. There is one judge, and as slaves, we have no right to judge the guests at the party. He is saying to them, you have no right to try to sort out evil from good. That's somebody else's business. We naturally want to say that there's a good and there's an evil, but again, I'm referring to Father Paul's work on the Tuesday program. He was explicit recently in explaining that unlike all other religious-slash-wisdom-slash-philosophical systems on earth, Scripture stands alone in rejecting the debate about what is good and what is evil. 
because there is one judge who will decide on that day what is good and what is evil. It is not our purview. And when we try to figure out the criteria for who's in and who's out, we are already playing a game that is too great and too marvelous for our temporal human brains. We are not allowed to judge. If there is anything that is taboo, that is not to be touched by the human being in Scripture, it is the seat of judgment, period. So be clear, he's not saying it doesn't matter who's evil and who's good. He's saying that's not for you to decide, so don't sort them out, because only one can see the difference between the wheat and the tear, and it can only be seen on that day when the books are opened and everything is uncovered in chapter 25. So just chill, and until I come everybody's welcome. Just calm down. When people read this, they have to understand that they weren't invited to the feast because they chose to come. It doesn't work that way. They were invited not because of their worthiness of the invitation. They were just found at that particular moment. You know, if you're on the wrong road, you didn't get an invitation. If you're on the right road, you got an invitation. Even if you're robbing a guy on the right road, you got invited. It's not because of your goodness or your badness. It's just because you were found. And this is always the problem when people talk about how they converted to Christianity or converted to a religion or whatever. It's all about their agency. This story takes away all agency. The ones who had agency killed the servants. The ones who didn't have agency were just brought in because they needed guests. It wasn't because you did anything. They found you and you showed up. It is undermining any reader, any hearer of this text that you made a choice to come. There is no choice here. As many as they found both evil and good. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. When someone is speechless in scripture, it's because they haven't been reading scripture. He doesn't know what to say. He has no defense. The one judge who holds all authority to separate the wheat from the chaff, the one judge who holds all authority over the heavens and the earth to decide who is evil and who is good. This one judge in Matthew is looking over and inspecting all of the guests. And he refers to this guest as a friend. There are only three times in Matthew that Jesus refers to someone as a friend. The first time is in chapter 20 in the parable dealing with the self-righteous person who was complaining about his wages. The second time is here with the one whom he will deem unworthy. And the third time he uses the word friend is when Judas comes for him to betray him. It is no small thing that this word occurs only three times in Matthew. And as I said last week, it has the sound of a mafia boss putting his hand on your shoulder and saying friend before 
he looks at his guy and you end up sleeping with the fishes. It's not good in Matthew when Jesus calls you a friend. And the thread that connects these three characters is self-righteousness, self-agency. I earned it. How come I'm being cheated? I should be here. How come you're throwing me out? This is our city, Jerusalem. How could my teacher give Jerusalem to the Romans? This belongs to us. I have every right to defend it. Friend, Jesus says, I have good news for the poor, and it is bad news for you. In this passage, what the good Christian starts to fuss about is, how do I make sure I get one of those garments? If we're thrown out without a garment and I don't have one, I don't want to get thrown out. What do I have to do to make sure that I don't get thrown out? I don't want to be that speechless person. I don't want to be the person without the garment. What do I have to do? Trying to understand what is this thing that he did so terribly wrong. It's not spelled out. Why is it not spelled out? Because it is entirely in the purview of the king. He comes in. He looks at the guests. Why does he pick on the guy without a garment? Why didn't he pick on the guy with the beard? Or the guy who didn't wash his feet? Why is it the garment? Or the guy who wasn't circumcised? Or the guy who didn't fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? Or the guy who had poor attendance at liturgy? Or the guy who didn't accept Jesus in his heart? Or the guy who voted this way or voted that way? Or the guy who supports this issue or that issue? We could go on and on with all the nonsense people invent on the basis of human judgment to sort the wheat from the chaff, and this parable does not allow it on penalty, quoting Deuteronomy, of death. This is exactly the problem. The listener wants to figure out what that criterion is because they want to be there. Earlier, it was simple. Just don't kill the guy who invited you to the feast. Well, I can do that one. I think I got that one down. But just to be on the safe side, I'll not murder anybody. How does that sound? Then I'm okay. And now he's throwing out people and he didn't explain why. Now people make the argument, you know, where was he supposed to get this garment from? And maybe he did something wrong. And they want to figure out what he did wrong. Why? Because they want to make sure that they do it right so that the king cannot and may not throw them out. They want to lock the king down. But the point is that no one at that feast owns his own chair. No one at that feast owns his plate. Everyone there was brought in on grace, and everyone remains there on grace. So if you want to go and understand and study what might have that guy done wrong, I would suggest not looking at ancient Near Eastern wedding practices because we don't have a lot of information on that. What we have plenty of information on in the Bible itself is how God's grace functions. And there's one thing you are not allowed to do is lock him down because here's what people want to do. They want to say, as long as I do X, Y, and Z, I can lock God down. 
as long as I do X, Y, Z, then God must do this with me. And then if I push back against that, people get really sad. Why do they get sad? Because they don't have agency. You do have agency. Your agency is to study scripture. Your agency is to go take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger, never presuming that you've done everything it takes. Going to bed saying, I did what I could, but my salvation is in the hands of the Lord, not in my hands. Whatever this garment represents, whatever the source of this garment or the means of receiving this garment are, you are never safe. You are always in the hands of this God who just comes in, looks at all the guests, and points his finger at one and says, that guy's not dressed right. Dressed right? We're talking about clothes? We always want to find that one criterion. This passage pulls that rug out from under us. And don't forget, we're approaching the cross. We're approaching that impossible moment of the king reigning from a cross, which is unacceptable. And as soon as we think that we've accepted the king on the cross, we think we now own our seat. But the point of the king on the cross is that as long as you have power, you're under an illusion because you have no power. All power, all decisions, all grace belong completely to God. Three times Jesus refers to someone as a friend negatively. The third time is when someone whose name is symbolic of the current inhabitants of the land in the story, Iudas, Judas, Judah, Yahud, his own people, his kinsmen, his, quote, friends, are upset because he won't take their side against the Romans as it's expressed in his defeat on the cross. There's a link between defending the position of the chief priest and the Pharisee in Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. There is a link between that position and making war against the Gentiles. This is how God's violence in the Old Testament condemns our violence. God can make war against you, but you, Judas, cannot lead a revolution against the Romans which is born out of your sense of life not being fair and you thinking you deserve a spot at my table. That is the function of the term friend in Matthew. It really is the violence of the people who are sitting silently at the party who say, oh man, that guy must have done something bad. That's why I'm able to sit here. Because then you're talking like Job's friends who are like, well, Job, if this is what happened to you, you must have done something terrible. When, in fact, we know Job didn't do anything terrible. The self-righteousness of saying, you know, Iraq, they must have done something terrible. Otherwise, their country wouldn't be a mess. Russia, they must have done something terrible. Otherwise, their country wouldn't be such a mess. The self-righteousness of that. Well, you know, what are we supposed to do? I mean, we got to bomb them. They did something terrible. It's a self-righteousness of those people who think that they're there because they're on the side of good. It's not true. There are good and bad people there, and only one person got thrown out, which means logically there are evil people still sitting in their seats at that party. We know that from this story, and we know that from the church as well. And, you know, Father, you referred earlier to the parable of the wheat and the tares. We know, we know for a fact there are weeds and evil people who are still sitting at the party. 
and God has not thrown them out. We are not the masters of this party. We don't get to decide who gets thrown out. Even more frightening, we don't have any assurance that I am not the evil person sitting at that chair. We're not allowed to think that we are here because we earned it, that that guy got thrown out because he earned it. That's the flip side. As soon as he gets thrown out because he earned it, because he did something wrong, then it means I am still here because I did something right. And again, we're locking God down and we're making grace our own possession. Let me be explicit. Palestine doesn't belong to the Palestinians and it doesn't belong to the Israelis. North America doesn't belong to the, quote, Americans or the Native Americans. Ireland, north or south, doesn't belong to Protestants or to Catholics. The land belongs to God. When you accept this and you don't assume a self-righteous or entitled position in God's earth, then you have nothing to defend then the Romans being in Jerusalem is no big deal because they're also God's children. Then you have nothing to protect. Then you don't have to try to figure out why you're better than the other guy. This is what we're talking about. This is the currency of biblical wisdom, which is why what happens in the land of Israel-Palestine is especially disturbing because you are using God's instruction to conduct something that contradicts God's instruction. And you make yourself the friend of Jesus in Matthew. No matter what your religion is or which side you're on, Jesus doesn't need friends like that. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. If that doesn't make you uncomfortable, all of you who feel called by the Spirit in your interpretation of your destiny as a Christian in this society, if that doesn't make you squeamish, if you feel secure in the coddling love of your Maker, you are not a disciple of the Mathean Jesus. People like to think that because they're part of the church, then they're good. The ones in the church are the ones who are called out. They're called out of the world, and so they're brought into the church. Therefore, they must be okay. When Jesus says explicitly here, many are called, but few are chosen, meaning if you were called out, okay, you were called out. You got a call back. But just because you got a callback doesn't mean you got the role. You like to think that you're the chosen few. No, many are called out into the church. But few are chosen, meaning most of you in the church are not chosen. Most of you. The church is not the remnant. The ones who are called are not the remnant. Only those who are chosen. And the only ones who are chosen are the ones who finish up their meal and leave on their own feet, not the ones who get thrown out. And until the dinner is done, you don't know if you're getting thrown out or not. You're still a guest, and you will always be a guest. In Scripture, you're always responsible for the stranger, because in Egypt, you are a stranger. There are those who are strangers in your land, and those who are in the land who function as strangers in the land, which means that functionally, 
everyone in the land, like you were saying, Father, is a stranger, is a foreigner, is a sojourner, that only God owns the land. God is the proprietor of the land, and his son is its inheritor. You are guests. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.